0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to TWIG54. And uh, today on the podcast, we have myself, Joe Kim, uh, Eric Kress, and Adam Telfer. Unfortunately, we do not have Mishka with us. And if you may notice, I'm a little bit sick, so my voice is a little bit screwed up. And today we'll be covering four articles. The first is Ghost Recon Breakpoint Spectacular Bomb Blows Up Ubisoft's Plans for 2019 by Polygon. Second is Google is making a spectrum of bets on stadia content by GameIndustry.biz. The third is Fallout 76 Now has a $100 a year subscription service, Fallout First by IGN. And finally, why have hyper casual games replaced Gotcha in Japan by VentureBeat? Uh, how are you guys doing?
1: Well, my son won the championship this Sunday. They are right. now. They were twelve and zero, thirteen and zero for their their season. They just destroyed everybody. Nice. Uh, so, including, I don't know if I've said this before on the podcast, which I probably have. Zaza Pachulia's son. So Zaza is a player on uh, the Warriors, and his son plays in this league team in Palo Alto, and uh, and uh, Jacob just shut him down and they destroyed the team. It was awesome because you have to understand his mom is there. His dad shows up and his mom's there with this super expensive tripod, like all super try hard stuff. And our team just absolutely annihilated them. Um, So it was awesome.
0: All right. uh, Any other updates or should we just jump right into ghost recon?
1: Let's do it.
2: Let's jump right in. So yeah. uh, First article Uh, Ghost Recon Breakpoint. Uh, Polygon had (laughs) an amazing title for this, but let's just jump right into what actually happened. Um, So Ubisoft is not having a very good second half of 2019. Um, Big delays uh, for Gods and Monsters, Watchdogs, Dogs, Rainbow Six Quarantine, all these games have now been delayed until next year. And that meant that actually their Q3, Q4 2019 performance is really all on the launch of one game, which is Ghost Recon Breakpoint. Um, it launched September 5th and just has been doing pretty terribly since then um, to the point that actually the CEO had to uh, advise investors of a sharp downward revision in the revenue. Uh, Ghost Recon is one of Ubi's actually staple like franchises, a co-op third person shooter um, that actually despite crit- low critical reviews over the years, have actually been you know, pretty stable. Um, Last release was in 2017, that was their Wildlands game, and actually, despite a Metacritic of around 70, went on to sell actually very, very well, both from a units perspective and actually supported one of Ubisoft's best live revenues, Um, actually I think like second to Rainbow Six Siege. But come September 2019, Ghost Recon Breakpoint was I think Ubisoft's big hope that they could repeat the success of Wildlands, but actually increase the upside that they had, especially on things like live. Um, so what they did was they shifted the design away from just being a standard co-op shooter to being an everlasting co-op shooter experience with actually a deep uh, progression system. So that means you can always pick up better guns, more like Destiny um, and, and, and less like a uh, standard shooter. Um, and actually create social spaces for players to show off their progress, sell progression boosters, weapons, and cosmetics all on top. Uh, but unfortunately, this model really didn't end up working for them. The changes that they made resulted in a metacritic of 60 and falling and clear impact on their units, obviously, and likely a much bigger impact on their DAU, which of course will translate into much lower re- live revenue. Um, like one, one issue here is launching in a brutal window. March for wildlands, definitely easier to launch in than September. Um, but the biggest issue is just the audience fit to the actual engagement scheme that they threw on top of this game. It really points again to the big problem plaguing PC console games as they shift towards service-based models. It's just that not all, not all audiences actually can succeed with the same live ops model. Uh, they're trying to retrofit Division 2 into Ghost Recon and it, it's obviously just not a really good fit. And with all the pressure to move to live services, there's clear pressure to actually take proven models of engagement and monetization and bend game design to fit the model but doing so just risks your audience leaving the game altogether as seen with ghost recon so my big takeaway for this is definitely to understand your core audience and build the right model for them even if that might mean lower live revenue not everybody can be fifa it's it's better to to build the right game for your audience than lose them altogether.
1: eric adam that was an absolute phenomenal summary of the <laughs> issue i will Unpeel a little bit because, uh, you know, obviously this is kind of what I do is track this sort of thing. And so I've been really kind of tracking this since E3, you know, where uh, despite a relatively strong showing at E3, there was really lukewarm response from a pre-order perspective. Um, And I think the more the community learned about this game, the more sour they became and Devam really never picked up. And then with the alpha and the beta, oh, my Lord, it was clear clear that this game was going to be a freaking train wreck. Um, and, and again, pre-orders and demand indicators that I track never really improved. So again, I, what you said was totally true. They tried to combine Destiny Division style looter shooter elements to a game that is primarily regarded as an open, amazing open world multiplayer experience. And with all the efforts to put these type of elements in there, they actually mis-executed against the core game. So they didn't do what they did really well the last time. Um, So fundamentally, it's kind of a mismatch of developer execution and expectations from the audience. But I I actually kind of think this may be a more of a fundamental problem for Ubisoft. Um, The fact that this game was kind of greenlit in this fashion was probably more of a sign of, of some mismanagement at Ubisoft in general. You know, we talked about with Riot the last time about, you know, mismatch monetization design and, and customer expectations. And this is the part of the problem, right? You push shooter, looter shooter mechanics with the hope of uh, microtransactions and it kind of convolutes the pureness of what the open world gameplay would be. And this is not quite as bad what happened to Battlefront 2 with EA, but it's very similar in the sense the audience's expectations were different. They wanted to play the heroes, but if the heroes were locked behind thousands of dollars of spend or 60 hours of gameplay, you know, that does not fit a uh, customer's expectations. Um, and for Battlefront's case, you know, it was an amazing sequel and it was almost better in every facet of the game. Uh, but the controversy itself uh, basically created, you know, a huge backlash with the audience. And that's what fundamentally, I think impacted sales. So, I guess the point here is that Ubisoft is not, like literally not paying attention to what their customer wants, or they're just kind of barreling through, hoping to cash into this ludo shooter economy. But I don't think any of these features should have ever made the cutting room floor for this franchise. Um, this franchise, you have to understand last year, it just, last time, it, it just performed so well and it kept selling and selling way above anybody's expectations, including my own. But, um, but it was based upon the co-op open world freedom of, of exploring, you know, side quests, all these things that make this game great. None of which has anything to do with collecting guns or gotcha or any of the other stuff. So anyway, enough about this game, what does it really mean for UB? Um, so the generally what happens when you miss, this is like their hero game for the year, right? This is like the game that's going to do eight to 10 million units. And it's likely going to do four when you're in that much of a hole, like you could try your dig yourself out and push these games into into March quarter, but ultimately it's a it's a basically this uphill climb, and so what they chose to do and, and companies do this occasionally EA's EA done this in the past as well is they just throw in the towel right so rather than <laughs> um, you know rather than fighting through, they just threw in the towel and pushed all the games out but my my speculation is that the monetization design of Rainbow Six and Gods of Monsters and Watchdogs were likely very similar to what they're trying to do with Ghost Recon. Not 100% sure about that, but they probably are rethinking their designs as that's gonna take some more time. Um, and they just can't mis-execute again against these SKUs or they're just gonna get super punished uh, by Wall Street. So the stock has gotten crushed. Uh, you know, It's gone from like you know 70s to 80s down to 47. Uh, luckily, a few of my clients were short, so I'm looking okay on this one. Um, Long term, though, I think Ubisoft is in good shape. You know, they really do, again, need to rein in their spending, as I've said many times. Uh, but from the perspective of like their core franchises and their and their IP, like I, I think it really caters and co- caters to the core. You know, Assassin's Key, Three Recon, Far Cry, etc., um, Rainbow Six. Um, but the biggest challenge with this company is that they got to stop investing in the nonsense. They got to stop investing in Starlink. You know, their Toys to Life nonsense. Steep, the Crew, Roller Champions. You know, even this Trials game doesn't seem very smart in this market. You know, Rayman Legends should be really kind of sunsetted. You know, they need to close these studios and optimize against this biggest franchises to scale revenue without growing development expense. So. You know, I would be happy to consult with them on the turnaround, (laughs) but (laughs) I really don't think, uh, I really do like this company. I mean, this, I've met the CEO, I've met the CFO, uh, they're really, really nice people, but I think they really need to take a hard look, um, at their organization, consolidate on the few franchises and, and, and cut costs in an absolutely major way. Um, the problem is it's a French company and that's kind of against their, you know, uh, philosophy, I suppose. But we'll see, maybe maybe uh, investors will start to push them a little bit more to uh, get more streamlined like the other studios have done, like Take-Two, EA, Act, everybody else basically. <laughs> so anyway, what do you think?
0: Uh, so for me, I don't have much to add besides um you know, more in, in terms of, I, I kind of plunged into the comments just to try and get the user perspective uh, from this article. And based on a lot of the user uh, comments and complaints, it seemed like most of the complaints were around, one, bad design decisions, and two, lack of differentiation. So in terms of the design decisions, it really seems to support what you guys were saying. You know, lots of comments about not liking having a level of gear score in the game and more generally about them trying to introduce RPG mechanics into into this game. They didn't like the introduction of bullet sponge enemies in the forms of the robots and drones, that AI, social hub, and in particular, the amount of microtransactions in the game. And so as a typical comment, I'll read one from MFT Rex, who states, bottom line is they wasted design effort on systems that players didn't want or ask for, loot scores of microtransactions, and they neglected the systems that made the game unique by outright removing them instead of improving them, the AI squad. Wildlands had its fair share of issues, but the core game was solid. But instead of building upon it, they took multiple steps backwards and the audience for the game reacted accordingly. That's what happens when you have a poor vision of what you're trying to make and or incorrect priorities. And in terms of the second lack of differentiation, there were uh, a lot of comments about one, not really seeing a compelling me to buy this game when Division 2 was on sale for like 20 bucks and some people just thinking that this game was DLC for, for Wildlands, for example. So I just wanted to present the uh, user perspective there by delving into the comments. Um, and the next article is, Google is making a spectrum of bets on Stadia content by gamesindustry.biz. And uh, in this article, Google, Well, the Google Stadia launch is set for November 19th but ahead of that, a few new recent announcements have been made. First of all, a new Montreal development studio focusing on studio games was announced. And secondly, gamesindustry.biz interviewed Jade Raymond, who is the head of Stadia, about their platform strategy. And according to the interview, Raymond is responsible for exclusive content and mentioned they were building out a few different first party studios and built, also building out the publishing organization to ship exclusive content created by external, indie, and, and other devs. Um, she also mentioned they will be working on games uh, that quote, that wouldn't be possible on any other platform. I think that's real, what's really exciting and why we're building out the first party teams. So what does this mean? And how will they do that? Um, it wasn't clear, but Raymond did say, uh quote there are a lot of things that being cloud native enables that you're just not going to be able to see on other platforms and also she stated in terms of multiplayer everyone is essentially playing in one big LAN party as far as the tech is concerned Um, and then she also suggested tying in google's other non-gaming tech like duplex which is for, for any of you who saw the google Demo of the uh, of the AI that that makes phone calls and does restaurant reservations, uh, but suggesting that that AI tech could be used for NPCs and things like that. And then finally, Raymond suggested that it, it won't be four years before we see a lot more exclusive content for Stadia. So apparently there are things in the pipeline that will uh, that will start to launch and so they. That, basically that they're making this spectrum of bets with different timelines that that should hit. So just in summary, it seems like three things. One, uh, they've got this uh, first party stuff, uh, this Montreal Development Studio is the first of that. Um, Secondly, they're going to try to make unique games that are specific to the platform that, you know, that won't be possible in other platforms and we'll see. And then third, it sounded like the timeframe for uh, you know, a lot of this stuff one would would be uh, staggered in that it sounded like they've got more time to to like develop this stuff. But but we'll see. Eric, what's your take?
1: You know, I'm going to take her uh, forecast with a grain of salt. You know, I think they have to take the long view because they were spooled up earlier this year and they had they don't have any any teams. <laughs> you know, it's just basically her, right? So, frankly, I don't even know if the service is going to be around by the time they make a game. So you know, but let's say they were able to gain some traction and Google continues to invest in the platform and they do have an opportunity to develop games for the, for, for the platform. You know, I have mad respect for Jade, you know, but I don't think she's ever made a game that would really benefit this service at all. Right. She talks about these games that, you know, leverage the cloud and always on and whatever. Um, But her primary experience is, you know, single player action adventures and shooters. Right. So, I don't think a new IP based on Splinter Cell or an action adventure game like Assassin's Creed will really differentiate this platform. You know, what they really need is something like Minecraft or Ro- Roblox, you know, that really captures the hearts and minds of the largest audience possible, you know, ready player one stuff, you know, and if they create a shooter or an action game, sh- sure, shoot, they could probably get something better uh, exclusively on PS4 and Xbox One, right? So um, ultimately, what I think is going to happen with this Stadia thing is Google will likely white label it. Uh, and work it out with the big publishers to build their own services, you know, similar to like something like HBO or Showtime um, on you know, different platforms and different ways of distribution, et cetera. Um, I think it's just, good. again, this Stadia thing is really a tough sell uh, for the core. Um, that would rather just play on a console or a PC. Um, and I don't think any type of content that they can make in the next two to three years will change that uh, uh, at Google, so, AT? Yeah, so By white label, you mean actually like they would
2: build out their content. Then they would offer this to like Sony and Microsoft and put them on
1: like their no, content no, no, no. on this button. No, I'm sorry. Stadia tech. The tech. White label. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that, that's what I, that makes sense. Okay. That so makes then, sense. I, that's, that's actually, if I were, you know, dollars of donuts, I would say that 90% chance that's what ha- ends up happening, but we'll see.
2: Yeah. And I would completely agree with that. They need to partner with stronger content creators. Absolutely. And especially as you see all these other publishers trying out cloud computing, it's pretty obvious that Google is one of the few that actually can get the tech right. They just won't have the content right.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, but I, just for the purpose of this podcast, I'd at least like to give Jade a bit more of a benefit of the doubt um, from this article. And let's, let's say she is um, able to actually execute on this vision. Because I think like at least the article focuses on the multiplayer experiences. That can only happen in tech like Stadia. Um, And I think if you can execute on it, then you can differentiate some products, but I just hope that they don't turn these games into giant tech demos like Microsoft or Google are definitely prone to do like what they're talking about, like these giant physics sandboxes, right? Like there's, it needs to be a lot more like Minecraft and a lot less like say Minecraft earth. And my recommendation for Raymond overall is really to define your audience and actually go hard at a specific audience. I think the, the best one is most likely a younger demographic. Um, like my sense is that older gamers are gonna be more likely to play on PC, more likely to play on Switch, and finding experience that really appeal to that younger demographic, things like Terraria, Roblox, these types of games, and then build out the talent that actually knows these types of experiences. Um, at least so far, it looks like they're hiring aggressively at single player narrative, you know, stuff that's in her wheelhouse.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean- th- yeah. but that, Which that's is just ex- not the right approach. Yeah. That's exactly the, the re- I didn't know that, that you could see who they're hiring, but that, I mean, again- well, I, I can't
2: see who they're hiring, but it's pretty obvious by
1: the job descriptions that are posted right. publicly. Right. Uh, then they're going to fail, right? Because they can create amazing experience, but I mean, you're going to be able to get a dozen of those on PS4 and Xbox One, right? That's not going to yeah. be enough to pull people over, right? Full stop, right? Yeah. And, uh, and I not hmm.
2: yeah. But no, if they if they focused on a younger demographic, right, that uh, might actually be a, like might actually be able to adopt this tech and focus on games like a Terraria, more like a Roblox, where it uses this physics sandbox sandbox type of environment where everybody's working within. Then you can create you can create different types of games that aren't available on other platforms and can't happen on other platforms. That can be a differentiator, but that's not going to happen instantly. And I don't think. And, and I think going after that single-player narrative experience is just just a distraction away from that.
1: Yeah, and I and I would I would argue what I argued is that first of all I don't think that team's going to have the capability of doing what you're suggesting, and then second of all, it's going to take too long for them to build something like that uh, in the time frame that this thing will be viable, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah, but Eric, if you're right that Nintendo doesn't do another console, you know, Nintendo on Stadia would be pretty sweet. <laughs>
1: Yeah, exclusive on Stadia. Sure. Did you, would you ever see that? I don't know. Probably not. No, I, I think <laughs> Nintendo's not stupid enough to do that. But uh, <laughs> but, but, but but I mean, again, I mean, you I mean, know, Google has some freaking deep pockets, right? You talk about uh, you think about it from the perspective of sorry, th- this is going to be kind of out of my butt right now, but like you think about <laughs> like how fail how much fail they've seen on mobile, right? If you put those efforts towards building. A service on Stadia, you know, that takes some of their old IP and puts them on a on a, a digital platform, um, and then again, it's like a button or or you know a, a select group of games that are available, and you charge a, a subscription. I mean, that's super compelling to a lot of people, you know. And mm-hmm. so, you know, that's interesting. But I don't think Nintendo would be smart in any way with any amount of money, which is not true. There's a certain amount of money that they'd be smart, but, but. They couldn't pay him enough to basically be exclusive on one platform. That wouldn't make sense. No, but I think.
0: like if, if, if they white label to your point, I think that's, you know, where they can have more control over, over the service, then, I, you know, that might be possible at that point.
1: Right. Right. Actually, that would make even more sense. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but but I, yeah, I don't know. That's another discussion, but uh, you know, w- we can talk about it. All
0: right.
1: <laughs> Eric, fallout. Oh, sorry. Fallout. All right, the only reason I'm putting this, okay, I'm sorry, sorry, I was playing World of Warcraft a little bit, I apologize. <laughs> um, uh, so Fallout 76 now has a $100 a year subscription service. Um, so launch today, it's at $12.99 a month or $100 a year. Um, and, and Bethesda basically explains the features of this amazing subscription service is Private Worlds for yourself and up to seven friends, a scrap box, which, un- which has unlimited storage for crafting materials, a survival tent that acts as a place- placeable fast travel point, 1650 atoms a month from the game shop, an exclusive Ranger outfit, and unique icons and emotes. So, um This is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of right like you just are layering failure after failure after failure on this thing and on top of that the launch has been absolutely abysmal right with all kinds of technical issues around the best feature which is something that people have been wanting evidently is the scrap box. but the whole idea of building a subscription on a business on top of a business that's completely failed um, is just insane, you know like they are trying to really make something out of nothing and I have no doubt that user surveys likely confirm the wants of the remaining players of you know the couple hundred thousand people that are playing this game but and they may even had said you know in these surveys that they're willing to spend a certain amount of money, but it just it's just ridiculous like that that this is something that they're doing right here's my speculation my speculation is this is that bethesda as a company has been trying to get rid sell themselves for years right and their expectation of their valuation is based on the years in which they release fallout 3 and elder scrolls which is absurd because those are every like you know what six or seven years so this game exists because in order to prove that they can make recurring revenue outside of their big releases, they created a separate team that created this game. And but because of like complete misexecution and mismatch of again player expectations, it's been an absolute failure, right? This this Fallout game. So really, they should basically cut bait and move on, right? And 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 focus on other things because this game has just been a real uh, dent in their reputation as being a relatively creative studio that that people really love, right? But um, what I I think they should do, and this is just my thinking again out of my butt, is they should basically build two, one or two separate teams, and that are in charge of building services based businesses in completely different locations from their core scu- core uh, development studio. Take the Elder Scroll and Fallout IP and make something incredible with it. And with little or no oversight, but with Bethesda Game Studios, right? Because they're gonna bring them back to reality of, of what they want in a game. And that's never going to build the game that will be successful as a, as a software as a service, right? So again, this will never happen, right? Never, right? Because there's no way these guys are giving up their IP to some, you know, remote location. Right. But that's the only way they can actually build additional IPs. They cannot rely upon the team that has created the same freaking experience over and over again for 20 years. Right. It's impossible. Right. It's a complete mismatch of team philosophy and desire for, uh, services, game design. Um, and so again, I think Bethesda is kind of stuck in this, in this situation in which they are never going to sell themselves for what they want. Um, and 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 their model although beloved by the audience including myself i mean i spent so much time in elder scrolls um, is not really uh compatible with the current market and the current current desire of the big publishers that are willing to spend the money for to, to acquire something like this so delivering a game every seven years is not compatible at all with any publisher besides maybe take two um and 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 that's, that's their challenge and certainly not compatible with Asia as well because they want profitability, co- consistent profitability. So anyway, I think they're in a tough spot. I think Fallout 76 is a, is a sign of their attempt to do something that, that is different from their kind of overall philosophy. And it was an epic, epic fail in the most highest proportion. So anyway,
2: I don't but know. With Elder Scrolls, like there's Elder Scrolls Online, right? The MMO? Right. right. Yeah. Like, like do you feel like that fills the void of I think of like a service-based game for uh, Well that girls? game
1: that game didn't do all that well. I think it's I think it's a solid, like, yeah, a solid attempt. And 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 I played that game. It was actually a really, really good uh execution. Expensive. I mean, they must spend an insane amount of money. So yeah, I think that's a better execution. Um but no, I think there's actually more that they can do. You know, it's like kind of like doing like things like Hearthstone and you know, things like like take the Warcraft of that universe and expand it beyond outside of uh, uh, of the you
2: know core single player. They, they did that experience. as well, right? They have the card game for Elder Scrolls as well. I forget the name of it, but yeah, yeah. they definitely have a card game version of it. Like they they, they followed the the WoW model pretty closely. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the Elder Scrolls is just not nearly as successful. Um, but I would still say is a better service overall.
1: Um, it's, but then followed seventy six. True. Um, and then I'm getting a little bit frightened about their their next game, their next big opus RPG is going to be a uh, uh, I forgot the name of it. I'm sorry, it's some sci-fi game, and uh, I'm a little bit worried about that because that could be pre- quite dis- divisive. But um, mm-hmm. but I'm sure it's going to be amazing. I just don't know how big it can be relative to Fallout and uh, Elder Scrolls Cy- cyberpunk. Like how how do you operate in the shadow of cyberpunk? True. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they're competing directly in the sense mindshare wise, but Cyberpunk will probably be long gone by then. Mm. Okay.
0: Yeah, I don't have any comments except to say that if you read the comments to that article, it's like six or seven people commenting like. Wah, ha, 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 ha It's like sixty to seventy lines of ha 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 ha. So it's just like yeah. I mean, it's
1: it's it's, it's it's yeah. It's so they t- completely deaf to what's going on in the market if they think that this hundred dollar subscription is going to work, right? It's obscene. Yeah. And maybe again, maybe it's the soup du jour now. Like everyone's going to fucking throw a subscription on every single game and hope you know pray that that'll work. I don't know. It's a little bit annoying <laughs> that it will
2: save the service. Because at the end of the day, right? Like if you think about the cost of like, wow, right? Like a hundred dollar a year subscription is not terrible, right? Like you can you can build up that value. It's just that you need to think about what the actual feature set within it is actually going to be valuable to the player set. Like it, Siege has what like forty dollars a year for for eight characters. Destiny has that like every year sixty to eighty dollar version, right? Like they're just offering a far bigger and better feature set to actually warrant that hundred dollar price tag um yeah it's just been sad to see fall at 76 continuous fall since launch i'm really just asking the question like why do they keep maintaining it I, like it's like you look at the mal you see the player base and like obviously they don't have a lot of players in this game so what are, what are they thinking with this like it, how are they thinking it's, it'll eventually turn around
1: i don't know i don't I have no idea. I, I mean, maybe they just want to they wanna continue to try to prove this thing out, that they can build something in between the big releases. But yeah, it's time to cut bait, man. It's over, right? And again, I think what I was trying to say with these user survey stuff is that they're probably maybe the couple hundred thousand people that are playing are, are really begging for this, right? But they're trying to figure out a way of justifying making it by monetizing it with a subscription, right? But it's just a complete mismatch of what players want versus what they're willing to spend on, right? And certainly $100, I mean, Jesus. I mean, if it was like $20 or something, you know? Yeah. I mean, like, it might make sense, but gee, these features are not that significant, right? They should have been probably features that existed on the core game from the get-go, right? Yeah. So, anyway, And I then, don't like, just thinking about that, that, like, as a, as a product
2: person, or as, like, running this game, the f- I would just be focused. Like, if it was really about like revitalizing this game, then I would be focusing on what is the minimum feature set and building up that retention. I would not be focusing on a hundred dollar a year subscription. And I guess that's just fundamentally like Bethesda is trying to squeeze out dollars from this instead of actually trying to build into a live service, which means
1: it's just the wrong approach. Yeah. All right. Shall we move on to the next insane, ridiculous article?
0: (laughs) (laughs) So our last article is why have hyper-casual games replaced gotcha in Japan by VentureBeat. And so this article first starts by characterizing the Japanese mobile games market, which uh, generated $13.3 billion in revenue last year, according to this article, third behind China and the U.S. But the combined operating profit of the seven largest mobile game publishers fell 21% last year and... Cumulatively, the stock market value of those seven companies lost six billion in market cap. It also claims that the Japanese market as a whole continues to grow. So, the article suggests that gotcha-based monetization, which uh, you know has made up the majority of spend for Japanese games, is on the decline. Then, with the Chinese regulation of new game licenses for China, many Chinese developers started focusing on the Japanese market, and so the article states that in July of this year, 18% of the top 100 games in the Japanese app store, like New Mo's, Mafia City, and Piano Tiles, were developed by Chinese publishers, and a further 57% were created outside of Japan. In reaction to this, uh, the article suggests that Japanese developers have now started to shift their attention to Western markets. Examples of, uh, of game studios doing this are ITI Inc, Geisha Tokyo, and Magic Ant. Suggesting that Jap- these Japanese game studios were able to break into the top 100 of the U.S. App Store via hyper casual games. My take here is that the title is a little bit misleading in that it's not that hyper casual has really replaced Gotcha in Japan. My read is more that a lot of foreign companies are finding more success in Japan relative to native Japanese companies, and the most successful Japanese games outside of Japan, at least currently, seem to be hyper casual titles. And so. To be honest, I feel that this probably deserves more of a deep dive uh, in in terms of analysis and what's going on with the Japanese market. And coincidentally, unfortunately, With the help of Josh Burns, who was a guest host on this uh, podcast earlier, we actually will be doing a series looking at different markets like Japan, China, Latin, soon. So hold on, but Yeah, the takeaway seems to be simply local Japanese game companies are having some trouble and losing share, and the biggest success for them are hyper casual titles in the West. Uh, Adam and Eric, what do you guys think?
1: You know, this article is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, like almost every point is inaccurate in some way. And, you know, these obviously, these articles are basically trying to prove a point, push an agenda, as opposed to actually be accurate in, in terms of its reporting. And I think this is basically an op-ed piece by Iron Source to push their advertising in Japan and really not factional, factual about the Japanese market in almost every way. And the fundamental problem with what they're doing is they're looking at downloads instead of revenue, right? For their analysis. And, that historically, that is a really, really bad way of looking at the market. You can get as gazillion downloads in any market, you know, by throwing a little bit of UA in it. But if it doesn't drive revenue, then it's it's irrelevant, right? It's just noise, you know. So let me just break down the article really quickly. So they basically said, the top downloads now versus 2015 are moving outside of Japan. Um, that is true. <laughs> it's absolutely true that there are more uh, downloads for uh, Western style games, Chinese games, et cetera, in Japan than Japan then uh, Japan games in the top 10. But revenue is almost non-existent for foreign game in Japan. So in 2015, it was like 80% of revenue were from Japan, Japanese developed games in Japan. Now it's about 70%. So 70% of all revenue in Japan is being driven by Japanese developed games. Like that is a owned market, right? And And it is true that there are a few games that are in the top uh, 10 that are Western, quote-unquote, more Western games, but they include like Pokemon, right? (laughs) Because Pokemon was developed by a U.S. developer, Niantic, but of course, Pokemon is a Japanese studio, and a Japanese uh, franchise. And then, of course, Knives Out from China is actually doing quite well there, so that's like more of an exception than the rule. So... And then the second point is the fall of gotcha. This is absolute nonsense, right? The majority of the games, almost all the games in the top 10 are gotcha, you know? And I don't see any of the top 10 games being freemium, you know, in the revenue charts. And there is no way that advertising is driving revenue to match the top 10 games in Japan. That's absurd, right? Um, And then finally, you know, China's making a move. And, oh, China's making a move into Japan because they can't get approved in China. That's ridiculous, too, right? I mean, their share was like two, one or two points in 15, and now it's 9%. But the more majority of that is from one game, Knives Out, right? Which is a huge success in Japan. Um, and the waning popularity of gotcha and the influx of foreigner studios claiming uh their stake in Japan market is shaking up the local studios. This is also absurd. You know, you can't base analysis on downloads. You know, the only game in the top ten by revenue that does not have gotcha is Pokemon Go, uh, which is again considered a U.S. title because Niantic makes it, um, and uh, and Knives Out, which is the other game in the top ten that's that's not j- Japanese, is has you know is the most successful battle royale game in Japan, and of course it does have gotcha. Okay. So let me be clear here. This is my thoughts on the Japanese market. There's really no room in Japan for foreign games, full stop, right? Japanese player play and spend on Japanese games, right? There are exceptions and there always will be, right? But Knives Out is probably the biggest one right now. But, and of course, Pokemon, right? (laughs) Which obviously why that is. Um, But I don't think this is a growth opportunity for anybody outside of Japan. I think you should be very wary of these type of analysis, right? I don't see any evidence the hyper casual games are penetrating the Japanese market in any f- meaningful way. On the contrary, you know, I see the standard fare of new puzzle games in the West entering the market, like Homescapes, Gardenscapes, Toon Blast, and of course Mario Kart, which is going to be big there as well. Um, you know, being in the chop charts in, in 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 downloads for Japan, um, and and also ha- actually generate any type of revenue. Um, You know, and honestly, the one thing that I don't understand and I don't think anybody understands is the advertising market um, because there's no real data here. You know, advertising is like this big black box of misinformation, right? It's even dirtier than free-to-play monetization. At least we have data to understand what's going on with this. But I don't have any idea what's going on in advertising. And I'm not sure this guy either from Iron Source really does either. So, but anyway, if he thinks that hyper-casual game could drive 15 million a month in the top... a month in advertising to break into the top 10 of Japanese, please give me what he's smoking, right? There's just no way that is true, right? And finally, you know, the gotcha era is not over. Almost every game in the top 10 incorporates gotcha in Japan. Puzzle and Dragons, which is a game that's like 100 years old, is driving $40 million a month. You know, Monster Strike 70 to 80 million a month and Dragon Ball Z around 20 to 30 million a month. Like all of those are like the core part of their games is gotcha, right? So I just think Japan is succumbing to the same overall trends as the rest of the world for the most part. You know, the concentration of revenue is these top long-lasting games. It becomes harder and harder to penetrate a market with such dominant games driving uh, the majority of the revenue. And again, attracting this really small audience of spenders. Now, in Japan, it's a little bit different. The audience is a little bit bigger. conversions a little bit higher. But nonetheless, these top games are driving more and more of a higher percentage of the overall market. So, anyway, I think the Iron Source guys are pushing an agenda here uh, of getting hyper casual uh, titles uh, to help drive their advertising. And this guy is the Japanese lead of Iron Source, so he's pushing that agenda. Um, and what irritates me is that these things should be opinion pieces and not considered news journalism. These, these articles are bought and paid for, you know? And I think this article is misleading at best, and it should be considered you know, basically an opinion or an advertising for their service as opposed to real news um, on something like VentureBeat. So that's kind of my long-winded rant on this. But... um you know, I've met the iron source guys. They're super cool. You know, like I think uh, Joseph has a good relationship with them, but. Um,
0: had, had until this. Yeah. Had, <laughs> until but, yeah but,
1: but my point is like, I don't mind these type of things as long as it's really <laughs> obvious that this is not news. This is like, you know, this is, there's a, an agenda here for this, this article and it's on venture beat and venture beat. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, they're a little bit, um, you know, more, driven by these type of articles but it should be obvious that this is something written by someone that has a stake in what he's saying from a business perspective as opposed to written by a journalist. you know okay
0: well yeah i (laughs) no comments adam you want to get me in more trouble (laughs) but yeah just just disclaimer i actually partnered with iron source on some events and their events are actually amazing and uh, some of the the presentations that they have are, are great, but um, I don't know. You, uh, Adam, you want to get me in more trouble?
1: <laughs> Your buddy is definitely going to reach out to me once he hears this, but whatever. You, he can call me and prove me wrong, and I I promise. If he <laughs> I, calls me, I, I,
0: don't, I don't know who the author is, but um, no,
1: no, it doesn't matter. If the author, the guy you know, we met when we went up to lunch that one. Oh, uh,
0: okay, okay, yeah.
1: But anyway, so if if he wants to talk to me, I will come back on the pod next podcast and and well, tell you, know, tell you should, what. How I was so wrong. Why we, am I wrong about we this?
0: We should uh we should do this Japan deep dive with um, you know, you, me, Josh Burns, and uh, somebody from Iron Source. Let's do it. All right, let's do it. Uh and that's that's it. That's the final article. Um, unless Adam, you've got some final comments or anyone else.
2: Final no, I, that whole article I was just digging about more Fallout 76 stuff, looking at their <laughs> MAU. <laughs> uh so yeah, I'm totally out of it. But yeah, no. Uh
1: Good podcast. (laughs) Talk to you guys next week. All right. Peace out.